Our speaker today is Donald Baker. He's going to be talking about the Gwangju tragedy and how South Korea became a democracy. Please welcome Professor Donald Baker to our meeting today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let me say, I'm always glad to talk about the city as Gwangju. Sometimes you see it spelled with a G. The South Korean government has changed the way they romanized their names. Um, I consider it my, my second hometown. Uh, I went to Gwangju, to Korea for the first time in 1971. I was an American then, before I got wise and moved to Canada. Uh, I was an American Peace Corps volunteer. And they sent me to Gwangju. They said, oh, you're going to suffer there in the countryside. It was a city of 500,000, but compared to Seoul, I thought it was countryside. And I lived with a Korean family for three years. I'm still in touch with some of the members of that family. And there was so, that's why I'm a Korean studies professor at UBC, by the way, because of that, about three years in Gwangju. I, I was interested in China before that. But the three years there, I fell in love with the city. The best food in Korea. And once they get to know you, the nicest people in Korea. They're kind of tough as they don't know you. Um, so I want to talk about it. Um, and I put up there, may that time never be forgotten. That's the slogan of the city of Gwangju. Because I'll talk about uh, how I, in 1980, there was a, a massacre in the city of Gwangju uh, at the hands of the South Korean military. And I happened to be in Korea at the time and happened to see it. And ever since, people in Gwangju have asked me to share with people what happened. And uh, we don't want it ever be forgotten, because if it is, it might happen again. And we don't want it ever happen again. I'll talk about, uh, how, oops, I use this, right? Okay. Um, oh, there we go. Oops, let me go back. Okay. Okay. I want to show you where Gwangju is, okay? Um, it's kind of hard to read it, not real clear. It's down in the southwest corner, okay? That's South Korea there. Um, and, uh, it's, this is Gwangju right here, okay? Um, the, uh, from 1961 until 1993, South Korean government was controlled by people from here. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and there's regional animosity. We'll talk about that later. Gwangju was the fifth largest city in the country in 1980. It's now dropped down to sixth. Um, it's now 1.3 million people. Okay. And again, it's known for the best food in Korea. It really is. I was lucky uh, being sent there. I taught uh, uh, middle school kids English is what I did. Okay. Um, now, when I got to Korea, Korea was already under a dictatorship. Um, in 1961, a general named Park Chung-hee uh, seized power from what he thought was a um, disorganized, brief democratic government. A dictator had been overthrown in 1960. Um, there was a brief period of democracy. Park Chung-hee um, didn't like that, so he moved on Seoul um, with about 3,000 men. It was a relatively bloodless coup, uh, 1961. He stayed in power. Actually, he, had, he, he ran in what was probably free elections twice in the 1960s, and then in 19, he changed he, the original constitution gave him two terms. He decided to be president again, so he ran in 71, and his opponent was a man named Kim Dae-jung. I don't know if you know that name. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and, uh, and so we think Park stole that election. And he maybe thought he, he was worried because he ended the elections in 1972. He declared Korean-style democracy. It became a, a, a really hard dictatorship. Um, uh, I have a friend whose daughter now is going to UBC, but he, he lives in Japan. If you met him, uh, you'd be shocked. His face is all burnt. He was 18 years in a South Korean prison. He's a Japanese Korean. He was not political until he was arrested. He tried to kill himself because the torture was so bad. And that's why his, his face is all scarred up. Um, 
amazing man. Anyway, Park Chung-hee, he's the man who built up South Korea to be the economic powerhouse it is today. I have trouble teaching about him to my undergrads because as a human rights, he was horrible. <laughs> um, but in terms of the economy, he built up the economy. He himself had grown up in a small, poor farming family, so he understood poverty. And I could literally see fewer beggars on the streets over the years. I went to Korea in 71, I came back, left to go to the University of Washington for my PhD in 74, and back in 78, and you could see the difference. It was quite amazing. So here, on the one hand, you had economic growth, on the other hand, you had terrible human rights abuses. The head of the Korean CIA, which is not like the American CIA, it's actually a secret police, was watching this happen in the 70s. And he was thinking, you know, maybe we're getting rich enough now, we can afford democracy. Um, and so at a dinner party on October 26, 1979, I'll show you this. Um, <laughs> Kim Jae-gil was his name, pulled out a gun and said to Park Chung-hee, we've had enough of your dictatorship and shot him dead. Um, <laughs> I was then on a U.S. government grant, a Fulbright, and I got a phone call from the U.S. Embassy saying, stay home, the president's been incapacitated, all right? <laughs> uh, I said, they got him? Um, but this is, um, they make them reenact their crime before their trial. This is the guy who shot Park Chung-hee. He had to reenact it for TV cameras before his trial. And they eventually hung him during the, um, the Kwangju uprising that I'll talk about. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, Interesting fellow. He, he thought he was going to be the one to bring democracy to Korea, but unfortunately, he was the man over here, Chun Du Hwan. Interesting, interesting man. <clears throat> Can't stand the man. I try to be objective in talking about history, but uh, Chun Du Hwan was then head of the army. Def um, he was actually, actually, at first, he was a commander along the border with North Korea. Uh, he took his troops, and on December 12, 1979, his troops defending South Korea against the North Korean attack, he moved them into Seoul and attacked his, the army chief of staff at his home. And then he made himself the head of the, the, the commission, the military commission, to investigate the assassination of Park Chung-hee. Okay. Um, Chun, evil, evil man, he's still alive. He's, um, he's being sued by the people in the city of Kwangju right now for things he said about him. Uh, well, to see, he comes back, he, he becomes president later. He's incredibly corrupt and cruel. Um, we call this a, a coup, this is him on TV, I remember this scene watching it, announcing that he's going to be investigating the, the criminals behind the assassination of Park Chung-hee. We knew then that Kim Jae-gyu's plans to bring democracy were over. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen though. Oh, you can read this, can you? Kwangju, uh, okay, on, on, um, there was, Chen Du-hwan seizes power over his military on December 12, 1979, but he promised democracy. In, in South Korea, the school year starts in March, winter's vacation. When school started in March and there still wasn't democracy, students started hitting the streets, demanding free elections. Um, and it got, uh, it, on, on May 15, 1980, there were 100,000 students in downtown Seoul, uh, peacefully uh, crying out for free elections. Um, I didn't put this on the slide, but I was watching some of these demonstrations. There's a, a a famous rotary around the old city gate called Southgate. Uh, and I was standing on one side of the rotary and across the street, uh, there were some student demonstrators and there's a, a hill, they call it a mountain in Korea, in BC we call it a hill. The uh, riot police who were wearing like Darth Vader costumes were pushing the demonstrators up the hill. Okay. Um, nobody's shooting anything except tear gas. Uh, I'm watching and suddenly I see 
a city bus, passenger bus, with nobody on it except the driver, coming down the street, going around the city gate, and then ran over the riot police. I saw five or six people killed. Uh, and the bus kept going, and, it went, and the students demonstrated, grabbed the bus driver, took him off the bus to turn him over to the surviving police. They forgot to put the brake on the bus. It started rolling down the hill, and there was a guy, we didn't have cell phones then, right? A guy at a payphone booth talking, and we were yelling at him. I speak Korean, yelling, get out of the way, and he jumped at the last minute because the bus hit the booth, but he was out of there. Um, two things were strange about that, what I saw. Um, the newspapers the next day said there, were, there was one person killed. I saw bodies. Uh, I didn't go up and check their pulse. What I saw was people lying on the ground and a pickup truck, not an ambulance, come and people throwing them on the back of the pickup truck. Why they said only one person died, I don't know. Maybe they were unconscious. Maybe they did survive. But the second thing was they announced the driver was from the city of Kwangju, and we never heard anything about him again. Did he have a trial? Nothing. We still don't know what happened. That was May 15th. On May 18th, the National Assembly was going to vote on May 21st to, get, to remove some of Chun Doo-hwan's power. So on May 18th, he declared nationwide martial law. He, dis he shut down the National Assembly, dissolved it, the parliament. He arrested about 800 religious leaders, 800 journalists, 800 politicians, anybody who could pose any kind of a threat to him. Okay? He'd already gotten rid of, by the way, people in the military who didn't like him. Okay? Um, only one city in Korea protested on the morning of May 18th. That was the city of Gwangju. And the reason is simple. That's Kim Dae-jung's home base. And he was the voice of democracy. He'd been kidnapped by Park Chung-hee. Um, and they were going to kill him. They didn't end. Uh, so he, he was known as the voice for democracy. And Kwangju had kind of been left out in the economic progress under Park Chung-hee. And so people would, would, would be hoping that Kim Dae-jung would become president. And they would begin to share in the benefits of economic growth. And the rest of the Korea people just stayed put. Now, there were military everywhere. And they were military in Kwangju. Uh, nevertheless, on the morning of May 18, there's a university there, a national university of that province. Uh, and universities in, in Korea all have uh, fancy gates. Uh, about two to 300 students showed up at the gate to the campus. The campus has all been closed. All universities in the country have been closed by, under martial law. Two or 300 students showed up. And they saw, or, uh, looked like maybe army or police. Normally, when students demonstrated, they were hit by tear gas. So the people that day expected tear gas. Okay. And so uh, they start chanting, Kim Dae-jung had been arrested the day before. They're saying, release Kim Dae-jung, give us free elections. And the commander of this group of troops facing them picked up a megaphone and said, you have three minutes to disperse. But they thought, big deal, we'll get tear gas in three minutes. It wasn't tear gas. It was clubbings, clubs that can maim and kill. That's how the killing began. Uh, some of the people escaped and ran downtown. And Kwangju, the street I used to live on, there's a street that on Sundays turns into a walking street, no cars allowed. And young people would put on their best clothes and try to walk up and down the street and attract members of the opposite sex. <laughs> and they're doing that on a Sunday morning. And suddenly we see these young people running down the street yelling, they're killing us. Nobody believed them until they saw the troops chasing them with drawn bayonets. The first killing by bayonet was that afternoon at 2 o'clock. The official story is it was a deaf man who didn't stop when the army told him to stop because he didn't hear what they were saying. Um, we now know that it wasn't even regular army that was doing the killing. Chen Duhuan, General Chen Duhuan, sent special forces troops to Kwangju to kill unarmed civilians. Special forces, troops that are trained to fight behind North Korean lines. Why did he? 
Why did he do that? Well, he, he wanted to make, he wanted to make a, a point, and Kuangji was the perfect place to make that point, um, that uh, you don't mess with Chun Duan, okay? Um, he, he knew there'd be opposition to a seizure of power, but he figured that Kuangji was discriminated against traditionally in Korea. In fact, it still is a little bit. Um, and so he figured he could attack that city. Also, he wanted to eliminate Kim Dae-jung as a threat. Um, and he figured if he killed enough people in Gwangju, it would frighten the rest of the country and they would be quiet. And he was right for a few years. It worked that way. Um, people in Gwangju didn't stay quiet. Um, they would gather and yell at the soldiers, stop killing us, and soldiers would attack them. And uh, we, we still don't have an accurate figure of the dead, by the way, because the army was stealing the bodies off the street. But um, finally, on May 21st, uh, the army had taken over what was the, then the provincial capital building downtown. Uh, and and 50,000 people, unarmed, gathered around noontime in front of the provincial capital building to demand the troops stop killing their people and leave. And about 1 o'clock that afternoon, as always happened in Korea, uh, South Korea, uh, loudspeakers started singing the South Korean national anthem. And the crowd started singing the South Korean national anthem and the troops fired into the crowd. At first, they fired blanks. So people thought, ran away, they said, hey, they're blanks. They're not gonna kill us. They came back. It wasn't blanks the second time. They were shooting in formation in front of the provincial office building. They were shooting with snipers. They had helicopters. By the way, the helicopter story, nobody believed us for the longest time. Until two years ago, they were renovating a 10-story building across the street from where that happened. And on the 10th floor, they found 250 bullet holes of bullets that had come from above. That's helicopters. I mean, I knew at the time, everybody who was there knew, right? But they wouldn't believe us. Um, and that's when some young people broke into reserve army arsenals and grabbed weapons and chased the army out of town. The army surrounded the city. Um, um, and the and city was free from May 21st to May 27th. There were still helicopters flying overhead, firing. Um, but the city was surrounded. Um, but on the morning of May 27th, with American support, Chen Duan launched a full-scale assault on his fifth largest city, starting at four o'clock in the morning. And um, by five o'clock, he had either killed or arrested um, the, the, the few rebels that remained. Um, you know, as an historian, I'm always trying to find out exactly what happened. I'm always having to correct my stories. Uh, I, I was told at the time, there was, a, there was a sound truck going through the streets from at 4.15 in the morning, a young woman's voice uh, saying, citizens of Kwangju, please come downtown and save the students. And then suddenly it stopped, and people said she was killed. And I was telling my students that for 15 years. And then about 15 years ago, I was in another part of Korea, uh, visiting a Korean professor friend. He said, come with me. I want you to meet somebody. He took me to a little bar. And I walk in, and the woman running the bar addressed me in the dialect of the accent of Kwangju, which is very distinctive. She said, I understand you were there in 1980. I said, yes, I was. And she says, I understand you think the woman in the sound truck was killed. I said, I said, I was told. She goes, no, she wasn't. She was in jail with me for five years. <laughs> so she survived. Um, anyway, May 27th, I mentioned how the Americans got involved. Um, people in Kwangju still don't know what to think about the Americans. The Americans didn't like Chen Duhuan, but, uh, and they thought he, the American documents, which are now getting through Freedom of Information Act, show the Americans were well aware that it was Chun Duhuan and his troops that started the violence, that they provoked this reaction from the people of Kwangju. But they were, they were afraid, and I talked to the man who was ambassador at the time, um, they were afraid that uh, 
if the Kwangji rebellion, a riot as they called it, spread, that would be an invitation to North Korea to invade. So they told Chun Du Hong, uh, we will help you recover the city on condition that you don't send any paratroopers down there. You send a regular army who are better, more disciplined. And, and we'll even fly the helicopters to bring them down. Chun said, fine. And of course, Chun put special forces on those helicopters. <laughs> he lied to the Americans. So people in Kwangji are still pretty upset. Um, at one point, during the days in the 18th and the 27th, the American fleet based in Okinawa started sailing towards the Korean Peninsula. People in Kwangju thought they were coming to help them. Now we know. They were there to protect Chun Duhuan in case the North Koreans took advantage of the situation to invade. Okay, so um, so why, why was Kwangju attacked? Uh, okay. Well, Park Chung-hee had favored the southeastern um, part of Korea, so Kwangju was falling behind economically. Uh, and there was a lot of discrimination. I'll tell you what discrimination was like. When I first year in Korea, I went over to the, the, the eastern part of the peninsula, and I was speaking with the Kwangju accent. And someone, one of the Koreans I was talking with, I said, where'd you learn that? I said, well, I live in Kwangju. Oh, you've got to be careful. They're all thieves. <laughs> I said, I love those people. You know? um, and also, Chun realized, Park Chung he had seized power in 61 with a relatively low loss of blood. Pressure for democracy had grown. Chun realized that he had to kill a lot more people to get people to accept his dictatorship. And they did. He became president for seven years. He eventually went to jail, by the way. Okay. He was actually condemned to death. Um, but he wasn't executed. And I'll tell you why he wasn't executed. Kim Dae-jung. Remember Kim Dae-jung, the one Chun Doo-hwan wanted to kill? Uh, in 1983, Kim Dae-jung was in exile in the United States. He'd been on death row, and pressure from the Americans got him off. He was in exile. And I met him in Seattle, spent two days with him. And he told me then that he, when he became president, he was going to do two things. He said, he also, I should point out, he said, when I become president, not if. <laughs> he, he thought God had chosen him to save Korea for democracy. Um, he said, when I become president, the first thing I will do is stop the death penalty. He said, I think the Korean people understand. He became president in 1997. He wasn't able to change the laws. But there's never been an execution in Korea since 1997, even though the law is still in the books. Second thing he told me, which I disagreed with him about, he says, I will pardon the guys who tried to kill me, including General Chun Doo-hwan. When he was elected, Chun Doo-hwan was on death row. He went to the then president and said, I want you to pardon Chun Doo-hwan. I'm going to invite him to my inauguration. He had told me he was going to do that in 83. The reason was he wanted to stop this regional animosity. Later on, Chun Doo-hwan said, Kim Zedong is a great man. <laughs> he tried to kill him. Um, but, uh, Anyway, so, but in 1980, Chun Doo-hwan figured that Kwangju was the easiest city for him to attack and get away with it. Because I can remember in Seoul, when I got back from Kwangju, I actually, um, thanks to my Fulbright Fellowship, I had access to the American military base with their photocopy machines. So I photocopied some, a poem that a high school teacher had written in Kwangju during the middle of the massacre, a um, very powerful poem. And I, I photocopied many copies um, of the US uh, Air Force, um, US Army Base Library and started leaving it on buses around town in Seoul. Uh, and I would hear people say, they didn't know I knew Korean, right? I'd hear people say things like, those Kwangju people, they all deserve to die. Yeah, yeah, that's what they would say. Um, I had to leave Korea, by the way, for a I couldn't, I couldn't stay there anymore. I was, I was doing things, I was saying things to Korean friends that would get them in trouble, you know? Uh, I was going up to soldiers on the streets in Seoul, they had soldiers in all the major intersections. I would go up and say, why are you acting like a North Korean? <laughs> um, so I knew I had to get out of there. I want to show you some slides. This is the gate. This is before the killing started. The students show up at the gate, and there's the soldiers there. This is a peaceful demonstration on May 16th, uh, before the killing started. Um, and what they're calling for is you know, democracy. Um, 
the, the slogans got a little rougher later. During the, the, the 10 days of, of horror, the, one of the former slogans was, rip Chen Duhan's head off. <laughs> uh, but at first, it was simply, give us free elections, you know, um, treat Kwangju fairly. Um, but this is how it turned out. Uh, the rebels eventually broke into a, um, a, a Jeep factory, and they, had some, they stole some Jeeps. They have single-shot weapons, by the way. That's all they have. Now, all Korean men serve in the military, so they know how to shoot, but they, they don't have automatic weapons. We were being told in Seoul that people in Gwangju were terrorized. No, no, no. As these young men in these military jeeps drove through town, people ran out and gave them food and water. There are only a few hundred carrying weapons. Okay? Uh, but they knew they were the reason the military had pulled out on May 21st. This is a common scene on the streets of Gwangju. Um, some of them are still alive. Some people were, were kicked to death with paratrooper boots. Uh, I haven't been able to confirm. I'm an historian. I want, I want to hear I want the stories confirmed by eyewitnesses. Probably won't get an eyewitness to this. There are underground pedestrian passageways. And one of the stories we heard was that some demonstrators had run in, about 50 or so, had run into one of these underground passageways. And the military came in with flamethrowers. Now, again, never confirmed that. Um, Many of the things we couldn't confirm, we got confirmed later, but I never confirmed that. Okay. We call this a citizen's militia. Um, and again, it, it took three days for the people of Kwangju to start shooting back. They were, they were being shot at for three days before they pick up weapons and shot back. The official dead, is not, it's now recognized as the Kwangju democratization movement by the government of South Korea. The official number of dead is 289. It puzzled me for the longest time that I realized to have an official dead, you've got to see the body. The army was stealing the bodies. That's not a rumor. A very close friend of mine, I called him my little brother. I've known him since 71. He was a doctor. He was a medical student then. The army was stealing corpses from his hospital. And they were stealing the seriously wounded. He was hiding people in closets so the army wouldn't take them. They would say, we can treat them a lot better in the army hospital. That's the last you'd hear of them. We're beginning to find mass graves after 39 years. Beginning to find them. We used to say 2,000 dead. It's probably in the 800s. Uh, someone said to me once, well, they killed that many. Everyone who was in Kwangju at the time knows somebody who died. Yes, they do. Look at that. Unfair battle, you know. You got five Special Forces troops with one little kid, you know. The dead ranged from the age of the two to 80. Did I tell you, can I tell you some of the stories about the dead? There was a young woman who'd gone to the, the Christian Missionary Hospital, a Presbyterian Missionary Hospital in Kwangju. She'd gone there to donate blood for those who survived the wounded. She was being driven back home in the hospital jeep when a helicopter overhead blew her brains out. The doctor who'd drawn blood identified her body when she came back. He was an American, by the way, uh, a good man, Charles Huntley. Um, how do people react in Kwangju when this is going on? Um, there's been a lot of movies about this, by the way, um, and the most accurate one came out about a summer ago. Um, and it actually won, a, won a, an award at the Toronto, well, the Montreal Film Festival called Taxi Driver. What you see there is what, what I saw. People confused. Why are they killing us? Why are they doing this? You know, um, that was the attitude at first. T utter confusion. You know, what's going on? Um, I mean, people. And of course, news was controlled. You don't have satellite phones and right? cell phones. Um, people wouldn't know. One poor guy who lived in, worked in the same province, uh, out of the countryside, took a bus in the town to see his son, not knowing what's going on. He got off the bus. Suddenly, there was a Demonstration around him, and he was bayoneted and died in the hospital. The, do the doctors who treated him told me about him. Um, so there were a lot of people. People, were just, if you watch the movie, uh, it's called the 
taxi driver. It's based on an actual uh, incident. There was a German reporter who was based in Tokyo, and he had to, um, he, he heard about what was going on in Korea, and so um, he, he wanted to get there, and he didn't know how to get down to Kwangju, so he got this taxi driver who didn't know what was going on because the, the, the press was censored. The taxi driver agreed to drive me down there, and you see in the movie the taxi driver slowly coming to realize what's going on. And the, what I like about that movie, I don't know whether they used that German guy's actual videos, because he had a video camera with him, or whether they reproduced it exactly, because it looks exactly like his films. So the violence is real. There's an earlier movie called, in English, 518, because it started on May 18, which is exaggerated. It has the people teasing the soldiers. We didn't do that, <laughs> I promise you. Um, it has the leader of the student militia, citizen militia, being a, a retired Special Forces colonel in his 40s. No, he was 28 years old. His name was Yun San Wan, and I'll tell you about him. He ran a bookstore for workers to get an education. He had free classes for people working in the factories. Um, so he was known as a radical back in Korea then. Um, a, a good friend of mine who worked for the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> um, a miracle that speaks fluent Korean, interviewed Yun on May 26th. And the army was already gathering more troops around the outskirts of the city. So my friend asked Yun, he says, you're aware the army's getting ready to attack? And Yun said, yes, I am. And Norman Thorpe said, you know they're going to kill you. And Yun said, I know that. And Norman said, you know, you can still escape. There's still ways to get out of the city. There's these back roads over the mountains. And Yun said to him, if I'm not willing to give my life, people in Korea won't know how dedicated I was to democracy. My friend identified his body the next day. He was killed. Um, so, um, you know, I mentioned after about three days, people got weapons and started fighting back. There were groups of leading citizens who tried to um, mediate, two groups really, a more conservative group that tried to mediate between the troops and the rebels. And the more conservative group said to the rebels, put down your weapons and trust the military. They'll be nice when they come back, right? Well, people didn't like that. There was a more radical group. And what, that, that's where a lot of the religious people got involved. This is what I found interesting. I've been doing some research on this. Now, I've got literally thousands of pages of oral histories of people here in Kwangju at the time. Um, and they're, they're organized by one of, uh, I guess you call them secular humanists, non-religious activists. <laughs> and then there's uh, Catholics and Protestants and Buddhists and so on. Um, the only clerics who were arrested after the army recovered the city were Catholic priests. There were only 10 Catholic priests in the city at the time. There are only like 20,000 Catholics. I was puzzled by this. Why? There are Buddhist monks, but the temples are outside of the city. So they were beyond the army lines. There were Protestant pastors. Some of the Protestant activists were arrested, but the pastors weren't. Then I finally figured it out. The Catholic Church had the best network for smuggling out information. Priests would go to the Seoul, meet Cardinal Kim, who's a wonderful man, by the way, a wonderful man. And they would give him information, which then he would give to somebody to take to Tokyo, where the Catholic Church in Tokyo would publicize it. No other religious group has that kind of international network. Okay. Something else I just found out recently. Um, um, I talked about May 21st when they shot into the crowds. The, the priest knew that was going to happen. Uh, so eight of them got together on the morning of May 21st, about noon, May 21st. They were going to put on their, their clerical uh, garb, their, the kind of clothes they wear when they say Catholic Mass. And they were going to go and stand between the troops and the people. And one of the priests called the general, and the general said, I can't guarantee your personal safety if you do that. So they were still deciding what to do, and they were debating one priest, who later spent two and a half years in jail, said, I'll go check out what's going on. As he was leaving the Catholic Center, far downtown area, he heard the helicopters firing. He knew it was too late. Um, 
I never got to interview him, and I was finally ready to interview him. He'd already died. I, uh, as you can see, this uh, means a lot to me, and it, for the lot, as a historian, I have to be objective. And so I wasn't. I've only written one thing about it. In fact, I wrote one article about how it's portrayed in film and literature. Because I, I think now I'm about ready to be objective. But now the people I want to interview are dead. You know. Um, you know. So. Um, oh yes, that's, that's a, there we go. Uh, there were some Western and Japanese reporters. The Japanese had a, a, a video camera crew, and so did the Germans. The other report, Western reporters were, uh, um, they, they, were press, they were print reporters. Um, I, I should point out, if you see the movie, The Taxi Driver, uh, at the end they have the army trying to chase this German reporter. They didn't do that. The reporter stayed right downtown. The army didn't want them watching the final assault, so they shot at their windows. Terry Anderson, remember that name? He was kidnapped in hell for seven years in Lebanon. The bullet went right by his ear. He said deliberately they missed him. They, went, they were just telling him, don't watch what we're doing now. Okay. Um, I, another proof that they weren't really trying to get foreigners. When I left Kwangju, one of the, uh, the American missionaries at the hospital uh, gave me some x-rays to show they were using dum-dum bullets, the kind of shadow on impact. Uh, and so I, to get on a bus, I had to get, go beyond the army lines. They were still surrounding. The, the killing had stopped, but the army was still surrounding the city. And had to get on a, what's basically a country bus to go to Seoul. We were stopped nine times at army roadblocks. Nine times. It's only like 300 kilometers. The first stop, I had stu stupidly sat on a seat by the front door. A soldier got on with his bayonet, shoved it towards my stomach, and then he looked, saw I was a foreigner and said, sorry. <laughs> and then he started to check my bag, which had the x-rays, and his commander said, don't touch the foreigner's bag. So I was able to get up to Seoul and give those to another missionary. He got him out to Tokyo, and they were going to get him to Washington, D.C., whatever happened, I don't know. Um, so we did get information out. It wasn't, uh, wasn't easy. Um, okay. But I already mentioned the U.S. government decided to hold their nose and support Chen Duhuan. Um, and even 20 years later, we had a meeting down at the University of Southern California. We published a book on that, Contentious Kwangju. The ambassador, I have to give him credit for this, the man who'd been ambassador at the time, showed up to talk to all the, both survivors of Kwangju and scholars who studied it. And he kept calling it a riot. We said, no, 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 Mr. Ambassador. The rioters were the military. <laughs> you know? And he said, well, the, we said, why did you su support Chen Duan? Oh, the Korean people weren't ready for democracy. I said, Mr. Ambassador, they died for democracy. They gave their last part. Uh, but uh, anyway, so on May 27th, and it ended. Um, I left Korea in June and moved to Japan. I couldn't handle it anymore. I didn't go back till 87 when Chen Duan was no longer president. Um, some of the pictures that you see, this is a child mourning a father. Again, the, de the dead range from eight to two to 80. Um, and there's the trial, 1995, Chun and his comrade in arms, named No Taeyu, um, were put on trial and, and Chun was given death sentence. Um, again, he was pardoned. He now says he has no money. Yeah. All right. <laughs> he, he embezzled a billion dollars. Back then that was real money <laughs> while he was president. Um, but at least they were put, it took us 15 years to put him on trial. Uh, but we did. There was slow progress towards democracy. I've never met John Duan. If I do ever meet him, I'm going to greet him in the Kwangju dialect, I promise you. <laughs> uh, how is Kwangju remembered today? Well, now they can talk about it. It's now a National Memorial Day. And uh, there's a memorial hall. You can't see the picture's too small. A picture of, of, of the identified dead. And if you go outside of the tombstone, they tell you the name of the person, if they had, if they're married with children, if they were a student, it gives you a little brief biography on the back of their tombstone, all 289. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Um, 
This is an official memorial. The May, they call it the May 18th Memorial Cemetery. This I don't like. You also see this as you approach that hall. There's this statue of these brave young men on the Jeep, you know, saying, wow, you know, this is, um, we, um, we were fighting for democracy. Now, I, I have to confess, I didn't meet the rebels with guns. I didn't meet, there were only about 300 of them. I didn't meet them. But the people I met, they weren't saying we're fighting for democracy. They said we're fighting to stay alive. They were scared. I still remember the, look, the looks in their eyes. You never forget. My landlady, her, her home, actually the back wall, was the back wall of the provincial capital building where the last rebels were killed. She heard the last shots. She said, you could tell you heard single shot weapons and then you heard machine guns and then silence. She was lying on the floor the whole time, bullets flying over her. She survived. Um, by the way, the army is not real efficient. The way I got into Guangzhou was uh, they, the army had blocked all the roads, um, but they didn't block the mountain pass. And so I followed a bunch of grandmas bringing in food, bags of rice, because Guangzhou had been cut off totally. And following them in, I got into the city. <laughs> you know, because they, they were, why they didn't block the mountain pass, I don't know. Maybe they didn't care about the rice really getting in that way, but that's how I got in. Um, and things I saw um, that stick with you forever. There had been a young student, a university student in Seoul, and schools were closed by Tunduan on May 18th, so he'd come home. But as a young man, um, the military thought he might be a rebel, so they killed him. And I remember seeing his, his, his coffin was put on a cart, was being taken out of town to be buried, and his mother was chasing after the cart, yelling, don't leave me, son. I'll never forget that. Also, we would recover bodies on the street, and you'd bring them, there was a judo, a judo hall downtown, kind of a gymnasium downtown. And we'd bring them there to be identified. And for some reason, it was a long line of grandmothers going to identify the bodies. Uh, for the longest time, that puzzled me. Um, but then finally, a Korean man explained that grandmothers in Korea are the ones who really hold the family together. Also, the grandfathers can't be seen crying. Korean men are macho. Although, I saw men cry then. A 40-year-old Korean man, very macho said to me, I heard that young woman in the soundtrack saying, come downtown and save the students. But I also heard the army helicopter saying, anybody on the streets will be killed. So I stayed home and he started crying. Uh, those are my slides on Kwangju. Uh, it's because of this city that I do Korean studies. I'm, I, I don't, I'm not a modern historian. The man I study uh, died in 1836. And as I said, I had trouble writing about this. I'm trying now to write about it. I don't think I, I've been asked to write a book. I don't know if I can handle that. I think I can write an article or two. A book may be too emotionally dry. It's, when you see something like this, I mean, there was so much blood on the street, they were using fire hoses to clean it off, okay? Uh, it burns into your brain. And right now in Korea, uh, there's a progressive government. In fact, I should point that out. There's a song that arose two years after 1980. Um, Koreans believe in ghost marriages. If somebody is young, in their late teens, early 20s, and dies before they're married, you want to marry them to somebody else who died young. So they married Yoon Sang-won, the guy who... The leader of the militia to a young woman who had been killed early on in the demonstrations. And the song for them is called, um, you know, what if, how do you translate it? Uh, can't remember. Anyway, it's a very powerful, very sad song. And for, from uh, 2007 to 2016, um, they couldn't sing that at the official memorial service for the Kwangju dead. And then a progressive got elected, a man named Moon Jae-in. And one of the first things he did was go to Kwangju on May 18th. He sang that song with the people. I was in Kwangju a month later. Boy, the mood was better. They understood their pain. So, um, but still, in, today, just last week, three members of the Korean parliament, opposition party members, conservative party, 
insisting that there were North Korean agents in Guangzhou, that it was North Koreans who instigated this, it was all North Korean plot. Two arguments against that. North Korean accident's distinctive. I didn't hear it. Secondly, they had bodies. Not a, every single body has been identified as from that area or being a soldier from the South Korean military. If there were North Koreans, they're saying there were 600 North Koreans there. If there were North Koreans there, the army would have surely showed the body, right? Didn't happen. Um, but have these guys saying this last, it's like an insult, you know, to those of us who were there. Uh, now, we do know the North Koreans wanted to get there because the Americans were monitoring their communications. They, they were trying to figure out how to get there because it's far south. But they weren't even able to get started before Chen Duan recovered the city. Uh, so, okay, so this, I wanted you to hear the story of Kwangju. And Korea is a democracy today, partly because of the bloodshed in Kwangju. Okay? I think Korea would have become a democracy eventually anyway in South Korea. But that accelerated. It, what it did, once the news got out of what happened in Kwangju, it took a while because there was censorship for about a decade. Once the news got out, it totally delegitimized military dictatorships in South Korea. It will never happen again. So I'm very proud to be a Kwangju person. Because as, as an historian, I'm very, also very fortunate that I saw one of the most important events in modern Korean history. As a person, I wish I hadn't seen it. But as an historian, I'm glad I did. And I want you to appreciate, if you ever go to Korea, go to Kwangju, great food, and tell the people you understand the sacrifice they made to make South Korea the vibrant democracy it is today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, who has a question?